As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast, the podcast with unpopular opinion that centre-left progressive politics has got a lot to offer the Labour Party and the modern world. We're in the run-up to Pride in London. Half a million children this week are participating in School Diversity Week, won by the LGBT group Just Like Us. And there is a renewed focus on the rights of LGBT people in this country, particularly with Brexit coming and many of our rights deriving from our membership of the European Union. But it is also the 70th anniversary of the NHS. And the BBC commissioned, as part of that NHS at 70 series, a fascinating documentary that came out just last week. It captured some of the headlines and has taken some of the debate with the people versus the NHS, who gets the drug. We're going to be talking about that and its story about the LGBT community's access to PrEP on this week's edition of the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm Richard Angel, the Director of Progress. I'm joined by Katie Curtis, Head of Events at Progress and also the Disability Officer for LGBT Labour, by Peter Kyle, the Labour MP for Hove and patron of LGBT Labour and star of the aforementioned BBC sensation and founder of I Want Prep Now, Greg Owen. So first up, I want to start with a discussion about Pride. Pride is one of my favourite times of the year, a real opportunity for me and friends to get together and regroup, but a big time reflection. Pride this time last year, on the eve of Pride, one of my friends was beaten up on a bridge over the Thames for being gay by a group of teenagers. And it really kind of brought into focus for me why we do Pride again. So I thought it might be a nice place to start. So Peter, what does Pride mean to you? I know it's a secondary Pride for you. Brighton Pride is in a month's time. And I'm sure everybody has Pride in Brighton is secondary. No, no, no. I was suggesting London was the secondary Pride. (laughs) As you, of course, have Brighton (laughs) in a few weeks and everyone has got their Britain tickets. But what does Pride 
generally mean for you? Pride for me actually means lots of different things. And I think pride means a lot of different things to many people. Primarily, pride for me was the moment that I first came out. And I remember very, very vividly the moment of being in the march as an out person and thinking that every single person who's lining the street was staring at me and judging me and uh you know all eyes focused on me and of course i mean i was in the audience i was in the on the street on the pavement for several years watching and looking at all these people thinking you know my god you know i think i should probably be there but i mean i I didn't have much angst when i came out i mean i i went through it quite quickly and then just (laughs) just but i was in my mid-20s and then i just rang me uh mum and dad and told them but the, the following year when i did start uh joining the parade I, I was incredibly self-conscious and now I'm very, very aware every time I, I'm joining the parade that there are many, many people in the audience who are doing exactly what I was doing and they might be look anonymous, but there are a lot of people who are standing there watching, wondering if they should be in the parade themselves. So for me, that that is what is at the core of Pride. I was also on the board of Pride for three years and put a lot of work in and saw the down enormous... In Brighton down in Brighton, Brighton yeah. yeah and saw the enormous amount of work that it takes to make Pride happen. And it is, it is absolutely year-round. They start the day after the last Pride finishes. They are organizing the next one. It gets bigger and better every single year. And I can say that because I was on the board, you know, 10 years ago. And it is so much bigger. It's so much better. It's so much, you know, better organized. And so everybody has a different thing. So for me, and now as an MP, it is a way for uh, me to stand back and look at our community down there coming together and coming together and celebrating who we are as a community, who we aspire to be as a community, and coming out and saying that uh, that we as a community want to uh, uh, to uh, create an atmosphere which is celebratory around uh, diversity, and that is a huge uh, emotional thing for me. It's amazing, isn't it, when you see someone beaming in the audience as uh, as they kind of you know they want to be not in the crowd but in the parade, and that maybe in future years they will be too. But also, like they take home a sticker, and it starts a conversation with other people in their family, maybe that gives them that strength. Katie, what does it mean to you, Pride? Um, so, like, very much like Peter, I went a few times uh, as an audience member, but before I came out, and um, I used to hang around with uh, rather large group of of gay men and uh before i came back even though i knew what's changed then well not near yeah, nothing <laughs> I'm, still, I'm in the labor party uh and so it's so then i i, I felt like it still a li- little bit wasn't for me because at that point i felt pride was still quite male heavy and the diversity within it um didn't feel like somewhere maybe i should be as as a lesbian and unfortunately this is only going to be my third London Pride and for someone who grew up sort of 30 miles away from central London I feel a bit bad that I haven't come bad guy I've gone the bad guy and I haven't come to <laughs> to more but the reason that I've for me I feel like so this question of is it a protest or is it is, is it a parade and I think Perhaps it's both, actually, because we've got the ability for it to be. And so the reason I go to Pride is because I can. I know, unlike my people like me in Istanbul, for instance, who this weekend have been tear gassed and had plastic bullets shot at them by police because they went on the Pride Parade. I don't, that's not going to happen to me. For the people I go with, the biggest decision we're going to have to make is whether we take vuvuzelas or whistles. <laughs> um, I suggest not vuvuzelas because people don't like them very much. But, but that's, uh, and so I feel like I have a, 
a duty um, to go almost. yeah a duty to go and say that i i can be out and proud here and i can do that on the streets of london and whilst there are risks uh, during other times when pride isn't on at that time i can i can be who i am and so i think it's uh, i think it's still a protest because there's still things that we've still got to win and there's still things that are happening like the rising um, hate homophobic hate crimes but also it's a celebration of just about where we've come from the time when i was a teenager to now greg what, what does pride mean to you well quite a lot to unpack there first of all <laughs> Um, what does pride mean to me? So, um, I guess it's a, a little bit of everything we've heard from, from Peter and Katie. What pride really means to me, I guess, is everything we do as queer people or however you choose to identify under that spectrum and umbrella is, um, everything we do is political. Everything is a statement. And I think picking up on what Katie said, not just can we, and do we have the freedom to go to a pride in our home city of London and around the UK, but we, we should, and we need to, um, understanding that you have the world's eyes on you for that day is as much a part of the global queer community. Um, I'll give you an example. I was in Kiev in the middle of June for their pride and oh wow, <laughs> I was expecting like that it wouldn't be like London obviously, but <laughs> you had to email a group and then you had to give your, your telephone number and then they would text you the entrance point through the eight eight feet high metal riot uh, fences so you, there was an, an entry point to a, a section that was cordoned off so we were part of this network of phone numbers and then they they changed the point several times in case they had been infiltrated so we finally got the entry point of where we were entering into this gated off area so the protest at pride was the protest at pride so there were literally hundreds if not thousands of people protesting pride and in ukrainian there some words are similar demonic and devil and satan were still popping up so i picked those words up and i had people this far away from me screaming at me and telling me what i was doing was demonic and i would burn in hell and down with lgbt visibility so that in itself was a, a huge indication for me that sometimes i think we get a little bit distracted here with our privilege in the uk and certainly in in mainland europe that it's great to fine tune what we have, but we have an enormous benefit and we really, it, this is a global thing. So we should be turning up for pride and turning up where else we can that need our support and drawing attention. Like I know my Twitter feeds and my Instagram feeds went a little bit viral with those videos. And I think that's our responsibility as well. What took you to Kiev for that? particular pride um as part of our elton john aids foundation funding we have to look into uh, developing and implementing um some sort of prep out there in ukraine uh, eastern europe and russia so they have they actually have what is an aids epidemic there so we we often talk about aids epidemic in terms of the 80s or sub-saharan africa but you go to eastern europe or russia they have an aids not hiv they have an aids epidemic so it's an area like that is particularly of a key interest to implement prevention because the treatment and and service there for people living with HIV is is not is not adequate. Wow, that is really that was going to be my next question. Is as London seems to be a kind of luxurious pride to go to, where would you go in solidarity? But you've all you've been there at the front line in Kiev, and we know colleagues of ours, Michael Cashman, regularly in his time as an MEP would go and be at the front of Bucharest Pride or other places doing his bit. And Seb Dance, the uh, deputy leader of the Labour Group, I know he does that as a, a Labour MEP um, going around Europe. Is, is there any, have you ever been to a Pride elsewhere, Peter, or places where in your to-do list that showing solidarity? You do work with Kaleidoscope, don't you? I do. But I've never been to a Pride abroad. 
I would love to. I'd really love to. I mean, I, I was an aid worker in across the Balkans and Eastern Europe back in the early 1990s for almost a decade. And I would love to go back and take part in some of the pride marches and some of the work the LGBT community is doing in some of the countries I you know, was an aid worker back in because I have made huge progress with many of their societies and communities, but there is just so far to go. And you notice just how much they look to our prides for sort of inspiration and to uh, just to see that it is possible uh, because we've got come to where we've got to in a really short space of time. I mean, we've gone from having state-sponsored homophobia until, you know, the mid-1990s, late 1990s, and we've gone from that to gay marriage in a very short space of time, and other countries are really holding out hope for it. I was on a delegation to China 18 months ago, and some of the, uh, they don't call themselves activists because it gets into a lot of trouble over there, but some some gay campaigners over there uh, had Googled, they'd seen that I was, this delegation was there and they have not Google, whatever it was they can do, they, can, <laughs> they have access to over there. And they'd, they'd seen that I was an openly gay MP and they'd left a message. So I got back to the hotel at 10.30 ish at night and there was a message there saying, could I go and meet some, some gay uh, organizers support people uh, the next day in a bar in uh, the old town of uh, yeah, in um, Beijing. And I did. I snuck out the next day and, say, and, and went along and met them. And it was absolutely fascinating. And for them, they didn't find the state persecution about necessarily about being gay, but it was the any organization, you know, if, if ever a poster went up saying, are you gay? Do you want to talk about it? If, do you have issues that we can support with or uh, anything like that, that was what was punishable because they're so terrified. Every single one of the people I met in that bar had been arrested. Uh, and yet we were in a bar and some of them were in, there was a lesbian couple who were very openly affectionate. And I was, every time they were, I was like, oh, don't do that. You know, what's going to happen? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was it's so strange that they have these kind of safe spaces. and But yet any sign that they are organizing as a community is absolutely seen as a threat to uh, the Chinese authorities, and it's and it's, they come down incredibly hard. And you can probably see why, because LGBT people have been very successful at organising together um, and against the odds. Famously covered by the film Pride, which was of course about uh, lesbian and gay support the minors and some of the work that went into that. I wondered whether, probably following directly on from that, that the trans community have really been in the focus in the media. Uh, recently with the government promising and then failing to deliver a consultation on reform of the Gender Recognition Act. We did a really successful, I think, podcast on the issue with uh, Heather Pito, who's a Labour activist uh, in the East Midlands um, and the LGBT officer for LGBT Labour. I just wondered, considering the role that drag queens and the trans community played in founding Stonewall, in bringing about many of these prides, do you think this is the year it should get greater focus it should maybe be the message of our prides is to stand with the trans community at this time well down in brighton we had uh the second second trans pride last year which was a pride specifically for trans people and, and i went along to it and it was a really interesting event and there's another one coming up uh, in this month actually down in brighton and i'll be going along again it was really interesting for me because it was it had a very different feel to it than the pride that we have that, that we traditionally associate with with LGBT pride, you know, gay pride, uh, it, it was a lot more inward looking as a community, whereas pride traditionally is get out and invite the rest of the community in. And but it was it was something that was very important for trans people simply to be out uh, in public, 
dominating some of the space which is associated with leisure in Brighton and Hove and making it making sure that that was associated with trans for for just one day. Uh, I hope that as it goes forward, it can go on the same pathway that other prides do in that, you know, making much more accessible to to people from all over our community so they can come in. And it was interesting that, that you know, down in Brighton, you had a lot of families who were going to it. Uh, what I noticed, though, and I, I've spoken to the organisers, is when you had all the stands for different aspects of, of trans life. So there was lots of clothing stands and there was lots of other sorts of stands that, they were all had crowds around of trans people, sort of backs out, facing inwards, talking to each other, and and, and and lots of families, but not feeling that they could sort of go along with their children and talk about some of these issues. And I think so that trans was the thing about creating a safe space for trans people first before they can look out. You felt, and of but course, there was some goodwill from people wanting for it to be a place to learn and to show solidarity. Indeed, but pride is that as well. But I think that it gets the balance right between being a celebratory event that invites a whole community in. And the thing that always moves me about Pride when you're marching is when you see so many families with young children on the shoulders, uh, straight couples, you know, same-sex couples, but, you know, having young people who are there waving flags, blowing whistles, you know, getting into the spirit of it at a young age. And the fact that people wanted to do that to, to trans Pride as well was was fantastic you know, this was like the first or second Pride. And I think it's learning to come out as we did from being an underground, hidden away uh, community to one that's being very welcoming and very at ease with itself when people come up and actually want to engage with you. Uh, and I think that's something that, that is the journey that the trans community has to go on. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, whether being able to do that within the broader Pride movement is something that the trans community can do because you know we, other parts of the uh the lgbtqi uh movement is streaks ahead of other bits of it and i i personally love the idea of having a pride which is focused uh, on trans so that they uh you know can communicate with us and we can be invited into their community on their terms rather than them sort of being assimilated into the broader thing where actually some of them don't feel the same uh, sense of uh, either liberation, uh, achievement in rights that the rest of us do. Greg, what do you think? <sighs> Some interesting points. Um, I think there's a real big difference between sexual identity and gender identity we know that so i have some trans men friends who are who have sex with men so they they in effect are gay men and they just happen to be trans um, and so there's a bit there's there's a, trans people who don't necessarily i guess identify with the sexual uh, the sexuality uh, identity of 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 that broad spectrum of the acronym um there, there is is and has always been that debate as to whether the T belongs in LGBT and of course I'm passionately I passionately believe it does but I think there's a broader conversation to be had about this is that I totally celebrate and support trans pride um, as do I our regular pride but we as a community have a responsibility in good allyship and just being decent people is that the amount of transphobic uh, behavior language uh, behavior online particularly the the amount of that that i see that we could change immediately without mm -hmm. the need to, i mean i i fully believe trans people should be front and center when they want to be if they want to be but we have a responsibility where we i think as white gay cis men we are sometimes find it very difficult to be mindful that we occupy most of mainstream and lgbt spaces scenes and media representation and i have some very very good friends who are trans 
it's very hard for a trans person out there being visible and they're, they're always the go-to and sometimes you just want to be <laughs> you don't want to yeah. be the poster person for yeah. your cause and i think as allies i think we have a responsibility to try and soak up some of that attention not attention from cause but certainly kind of to try and mop up some of the the stuff that our trans friends are, com are, are combating in the minute because it's, it's vicious out there for trans people I think sort of I mentioned at the beginning of this about how I feel the lack of diversity within the community at Pride events uh, needs to increase uh, and so that certainly that certainly includes trans people within that and this should be a place for all of those in the acronym yeah. uh, and that's how I feel I my feeling though is with um standalone prides one of my favorite ever lgbt events i've ever been to is black pride yeah, in UK London. Black pride, brilliant, it's, it's it, yeah. absolutely amazing my concern is that there is no assimilation when it comes to london pride you know with the greatest con concentration of bme lgbt people i suspect in the country so my concern with going ahead with having lots of uh, sort of uh, prides that were just for individual groups that actually it doesn't help in the mainstream so we actually yes it's good for all the things that peter have said why the trans pride took place but actually if our if we're going to be more diverse as a community and in the events that we do together uh, then we've got to ensure that there's a place for everybody at those the two other quick things i'd say is the fact that the fact there is now a plethora of prides is amazing i mean lots of the coastal towns along the south of england have their own pride eastbourne hastings worthing you know these all have their own pride and that, they are fantastic events it isn't now just the, the jumbo prides of london and brighton yeah, yeah. which are which, which are dominating which is great i grew up in bognor regis i long for the day i can go back there and, and do a pride that would mean the world to me and i know lots of other people there and the other thing is actually people with mental health uh uh, when I was on the border pride, you know, a decade ago, we had the first uh, float for people with mental health challenges, and uh, Mind Out um, organised the, the float. And seeing people with mental health challenges who are celebrating their sexuality for me was the most emotional mo single moment I've had in all my involvement in Pride. It was absolutely the most remarkable, moving, uh, uplifting. Uh, thing I've ever seen and every year now they take part and they're becoming a you know more prominent part of it and I think any uh, sort of group of uh, people who can come out and celebrate their sexuality and feel at ease doing so I think is an incredibly important thing and shows the relevance of, of pride today because often when you engage with the health service you have to come out again and people make lots of assumptions about you and that can be a time in which you are particularly vulnerable in another way I'm mean, you're ill you're tired you're having uh, a mental health episode in some way the fact you might have to go to that and assumptions are made about you is a huge thing i'm gonna just move on very quickly and ask about school diversity week so a, a brilliant lgbt charity called just like us trains young people to go back into schools many of them they've just left to talk about what it's like coming out diversity etc and uh half a million uh young people are engaging in that this week in the run-up to uh london pride and i just wondered what would we all say to our 14 15 year old self about what we know now about being in the LGBT community and what you say to them i'm going to start with you greg <laughs> okay what would i say to my 12 year old self at school assembly um i think i would tell myself not to be afraid of the things that make me different and not to be ashamed of those things and um maybe my camp or shall we say feminine traits are the things that i hated and was maybe picked on 
uh, for as a child. The things that I, I really loathed sometimes about myself are actually the things that I found most of my strength in. So I think I, I do really well in the field I'm in at the minute because I draw on empathy and compassion and I'm very sensitive to those around me and that really helps with what I do. So those things that I thought were weakness and that I got picked on for when I was a kid, those actually are the things that are helping me to excel. So I would give my 12-year-old self that advice to embrace those parts because they make you special. Amazing. Katie? Um, I think, so. first of all, I would say, um, don't drag your feet, Katie. Um, <laughs> it wasn't worth it. Weighty Katie. Yeah, don't drag your feet. It wasn't worth it. Uh, you didn't need to go out with all those boys, and uh, that was fine. Um, and I think I think what I should, would also say is, is trust other people to not be the kind of people you think they're going to be. And so my concern all through my teenage years, when I was uh, struggling myself with what my my sexuality was going to be my biggest concern was what everybody else was going to think and I didn't trust certainly my fat my close family to be okay with it I my assumption was they wasn't going to be and I think that's what I would say to myself just trust people around you more and to say to myself look it's going to take you a while to come to terms with it so of course it's going to take other people a while to come to terms with it but as these people say it does actually get better Peter what would you say I've been thinking while everyone else has been talking, and the, the truth is, uh, I don't think I would say anything to myself. It, it was such a different world. I mean, I'm 47 now. I, I went to school, to a comprehensive school in Bognor Regis in the 1980s. I didn't know a single gay person. I just didn't. There, were, there wasn't in my school, not in my daily life. I, I didn't know anyone that was gay. So I don't know what I would say to myself back then. Um, and also... You know, if, if I was to go and speak to that young person in the 1980s, you know, the problem back then is that had I stood up and spoken about what I was feeling, there, there, was, an, there was an absolute finality to it. I mean, if I'd stood up and said, I think I might be gay, and I want to sort of, exp- I want to just explore that side of me, <laughs> firstly, I'd, God knows where I'd have gone or what I'd have done or how I'd have acted on it. And secondly, there's no, the problem is that there was no going back. You know, you couldn't explore that to see if that was me or not, because there would be no no going back for it. You know, in those days, uh, you know, this is under Section 28 as well, you know, towards the end of my time at school, then, you know, that is not something that you would have um, been able to, you know, I would have come out of it a very different person. And I'm very proud of the person I've become, uh, even though I went on that journey much later than other people did. So I don't think that I if I was speaking to myself I probably wouldn't mention it because I I know who I was I was a strong person and I was dealing with with it my own my own way but uh I probably wouldn't have encouraged myself to do anything too fundamentally different however having said that there's a school in my constituency called Blatchington Mill and they are pioneering at this and soon after I became an MP uh, back in 2015 I was invited back in to meet their LGBT group in the school and I walked in and there was hundreds of them in this room and I just looked around saying, are you all gay? <laughs> and they were like, no, but we meet in our lunch break once a week and we want to create the environment where you can be who you are. So it doesn't matter to us who is, who isn't. We come together for it. And they started off by saying, could I introduce myself? Could I, um, you know, and I said, oh, I'm Peter Kyle. Um, I'm the MP for Hove. And they said, no, 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 no. You know, how do you identify? And it's the first time anyone had ever asked me that question. And I didn't know what it meant. So... 
I was uh, so I I sort of like was struggling around, and I said, Five foot ten. "I'm yeah," <laughs> but I was thinking all of this, and I could see I could see Chris, who runs my office down there, with me, and I could see the look of panic on his face because he could see that I was struggling to know what was going on. And I said, "I'm Peter Kyle. I'm your Labour MP. Uh, I'm a gay man." And they all started clapping. And I mean, it was... coming out as a Labour MP is <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. And I was the only one through a two hundred mile stretch of coastline at the time. But, but it was incredibly emotional for me to see the really genuinely loving environment that they have created at that school and still have. And then they won the Stonewall Award for, for creating that atmosphere. And other, loads of other schools have learned from it now. Of course, if I, as a young person, was at that school, things would be fundamentally different for me. Absolutely fundamentally different for me because people can and do uh, explore their sexuality in a really free and uh, loving, uh, supportive way, which simply wasn't there for me back in the day. So, you know, if I could have had that back then, then my God, how wonderful that would have been. And I, I really look in envy at the progress that's been made in some parts of our community, not all. I think we could go on forever. So I'm going to call it to uh, an end there and we'll be back short after this short break. My name is Jasmine Beckett and I'm standing for the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, we are campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. All members want a say on the biggest issue facing our country at the moment. You can sign up to the campaign now at laboursay.eu. We're back with Greg Owen from I Want Prep Now, Katie Curtis from Progress and the Disability Officer of LGBT Labour and Labour MP Peter Kyle. Thank you, Greg, in particular for joining us today and well done on what was an absolutely fascinating and brilliant TV documentary last week. For those who haven't seen it, The People versus the NHS, Who Gets the Drugs, was an amazing insight into the fight that you've been leading or been part of leading to get PrEP, uh, which is, how do I say it, pre-exposure prophylaxis prophylaxis to the LGBT community and those who might need it uh, to prevent HIV transmission. So for those who don't know about PrEP, can you tell us a little bit about what PrEP is and how it works and why people, in particular LGBT people, might need access to it? Certainly. So PrEP, as you quite rightly said, stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what that means, so pre is something you do before and exposure, in this case, to HIV, and prophylaxis is a treatment or action you can take to help prevent disease. So in effect, it's a preventative pill. So it's a pill that stops you getting HIV. How it works is basically it prevents HIV from replicating in the body. So if HIV gets into your system through uh, in through uh, a needle stick or through se- uh, sexual exposure, it can't replicate and it needs to be able to replicate for an infection to take hold. So eventually what happens is the body recognizes this as foreign material and it's flushed out naturally. So it's, it's an incredibly powerful new tool for HIV prevention. And if taken directly, it offers you almost 100 percent protection against HIV. So to put into context as to why that might be good for the LGBT community, we need to break that down. So we know that uh, women and lesbians aren't particularly at high risk um, of HIV. Um, Gay and bisexual men are. And trans women are hugely disproportionately affected. They're 49 times more likely than the general population to contract HIV in their lifetime. So it's incredibly important to have this discussion within the trans community, particularly for trans women. 
Um, and to put it into context further then, for gay and, bi gay and bisexual men, which we, we call in the HIV sector MSM, men who have sex with men, because some people don't necessarily identify with those labels. So we know that there was about 6,000 diagnoses per year up until very recently, and half of those occurred within MSM, gay and bisexual men but we only make up three to 5% of the population. So a huge amount of HIV in a very small number of people. So for gay and bisexual men is a huge, huge opportunity for us to turn the tide on the epidemic. And actually we've started to see huge results. We know that Dean Street have reported 40% reduction in HIV for the last two years running. So we're seeing huge, huge reductions. And you've been doing that despite sometimes, well, almost definitely the NHS and the health service here and you've had to essentially fight them every step of the way. Do you want to tell people a little bit about the kind of journey that you've been on? Um, I have to give credit where credit's due in the legal battle with NHS England to get PrEP um, not even commissioned but considered as part of the CPAG process which is basically a process that considers all new treatments or medications, a priorities group um, that assesses that. And that uh, legal challenge was carried out by National AIDS Trust, NAT, um, led brilliantly by uh, Deborah and uh, Yusuf. Um, so they took NHS England to court, um, was it 2016? And um, they won. So NHS England said they, they didn't have the legal power to um, provide PrEP. And so um, our listeners will have followed the Lansley Act, which was the Health and Social Act in 2012, which broke up lots of the national elements of the NHS and gave uh, promoting public health to local authorities. And what your documentary was showing is that that was the kind of excuse that the NHS hid behind was that that bill said they were no longer responsible for HIV prevention and therefore, this couldn't be one they, they considered. So two things. Um, the Health and Social Care Act of 2012 created the environment in which this buck passing could happen. It's a hideous situation. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of prevention, not all, because NHS England still pay for some prevention um, interventions. <laughs> a lot of that responsibility went to local authorities, but they've had their budgets cut. Not just frozen and not increased, but cut. And the first services that go are mental health and sexual health. And we're seeing crippling... Um, cuts to sexual health services and funding for sexual health. Um, but NHS England, very strangely, a few months before they decided that they go and say that they couldn't fund PrEP, actually released a statement saying that it was NHS England's responsibility to purchase all antiretrovirals within the NHS. And of course, at that point, we were talking about antiretrovirals for treatment of HIV, not prevention. So they'd issued this. It, it, the whole thing was a stalling tactic and I think a, a shrug of responsibility. Ultimately, I think they just didn't want to pay for it and they wanted to try and pass the buck as long as they could, but they didn't get away with it. Because the NHS pays for statins, which is a preventative uh, pill that people can take. It pays for the contraceptive pills. So there's plenty of things that it does to be uh, preventative in healthcare. And in fact, probably its best spend is preventing people from ending up in hospital or more expensive treatments down the line. You have some experience of this, Peter. Well, I, I do actually. I think, firstly, I, I thought the documentary was absolutely first rate. I mean, it was genuinely informative and incredibly enjoyable and the way that the debate was presented was absolutely first rate and very, very accessible. And of course, uh, Andrew Pierce kind of wheeled out the argument that basically that we shouldn't be funding for, for, for men who don't want to be bothered with making a decision about whether to use a condom or not. And, you know, as somebody, I worked on the teen pregnancy strategy for the last Labour government that was incredibly effective, incidentally. And also cost about 25 to 30 million pounds to produce 
uh, that effectiveness, about the same kind of money that, that is being asked for now to, to roll out PrEP. And, you know, you could apply that same argument to almost every single preventative issue when it comes to sexual health. You know, if only people who were in at-risk groups just didn't have sex, then everything would be fine. But I don't see what kind of, I almost said perfect world that Andrew Pierce and others advocate for, because it sure as hell doesn't sound perfect to me. <laughs> it, sound sounds, fun, it? <laughs> it sounds quite imperfect to me. You must have planned your sex with <laughs> exactly. so many hours to go. And well, well, it's exactly. easy to plan sex when you're not getting any. There are people like, like Andrew who just rail against the world we find. And there are others who take the world we find and try and make sure we make the best of it. And yes, that does mean that there are some people who consciously choose not to. Uh, however, we as a society uh, have an obligation to do what's right for, for our whole society. And it, it PrEP makes economic sense. It makes health sense. It is our way, the, the way that our generation can hand down a healthier generation that is upcoming and less challenges to the next generation. I mean, this, this is a political podcast. And I've been really struck in recent months about how this generation is picking up the pieces and paying an exorbitant amount of money solving the problems that the previous generations of politicians just simply haven't been bothered to solve because they're just too difficult. Heathrow expansion. Uh, I spent two days last week in Sellafield looking at nuclear decommissioning. You know, this goes back to the 90, uh, 1946 and we still have to, our generation has to spend billions and billions tackling the nuclear waste from the 1940s because no other generation has, has been bothered to. And if they had, it would have cost a fraction of what we're going to pay for. Uh, and the same can be said time and time and time again, right down to Trident and a whole bunch of other things. This, I think, falls into that kind of category. If we don't deal with these kind of health issues now, these public health issues now, then we are bequeathing a problem to the future generations that is going to cause untold misery, loss of life, and is going to cost a hell of a lot more to solve. Now, if there's somebody on the Daily Mail that doesn't think that this is palatable because it means some people having fun or not making, not sitting back and having a whole, uh, a warm cup of cocoa and thinking, you know, in a reasoned way before they have a very passionate, you know, <laughs> affair or whatever, then I'm sorry. But actually, let's just deal with this issue. It's 25 million quid. It, let's solve it and solve the human misery that un, unfolds when we don't tackle issues like this. You must have been incensed, Greg, watching Andrew Pierce's comments in the documentary. No, I was. I mean, I, I, when the documentary aired, it was the third time I'd seen it because I, I, I was sitting in the edit. Um, but no, I wasn't. Initially, the first time I saw him pop up, I can't deny I'm just, I'm only human. My, my everything tightened and I was tense. But I kind of had to take a step back from that. And this, it was a real exercise in in w what I am through that. So yeah, I was initially triggered and I had a very gut reaction to him. But then I had to step back and I was like, okay, what is going on here with you? So either, I don't know whether it's some very deep-rooted, internalized homophobia um, or whether it, he just actually genuinely doesn't believe that, whether it's contention for contention's sake. And that level of attention seeking in itself is, a, is, a, is an issue. And I will call it an issue. So, no, I don't have any animosity towards Andrew Pierce. Is that his name? It is. is can, it? I, can I just quickly come I in just, on, on Andrew? Because uh, he isn't here to defend himself. Andrew is a remarkable person because he was one of, if not the first, uh, out journalist in Fleet Street. And he did so 
with a huge amount of bravery at the time. It, it, for me, it's a shame when I see him today, when I see how brave he's been in the past, effectively filling the role of a sort of pantomime, you know, baddie when it comes to issues like this, because uh, these kind of shock jock uh, arguments do create a very large audience for oneself if you're looking for it. But actually, I don't see the arguments he's putting forward now actually taking us deeper in towards solving these big public health challenges. Because, you know, if the same arguments were being made back in contra when contraception was being brought in and, and mainstreamed back in the, in the 1960s, then, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today. You know, the whole bunch of different issues. And I feel that that kind of argument, we've been around the mill, every generation has been around that mill uh, or around that roundabout uh, with public health on a whole bunch of different areas and to keep seeing the same the same argument wheeled out you know year after year it's just tiresome and we need to get over it i have to agree with you and i don't like i said i don't want to come down heavily on andrew he, he had his own motivations for saying what he said but ultimately I, I i would err on the side of compassion and trying to understand what his motivation was if it almost more if it those kind of words didn't cause such damage. So I think we all need to start accepting responsibility for the language we use and the message we send. And I don't think Andrew's, ironically, the person who's screaming, be responsible, be responsible. I don't think that kind of mess messaging was remotely responsible on his behalf. I think that's true. One of the things I took from it that was fascinating is that when they did the initial trial on PrEP is they actually called the kind of the trial to an end early and said it's immoral to have a control group not on PrEP because of how effective this was as a drug. And I think uh, for lots of people listening to this who haven't engaged with the elderly community and in the issues around the sexual health issues involved, this has come about really, really quickly and has moved very fast, but has shown itself to be such an effective treatment that um, people are screaming out for it to be shared widely. So I think it, it's it was 86%. I mean, 86% in the control group were, you know, were not contracting HIV. But of those who took PrEP, it was 100%. You know, so 86%, obviously some people weren't taking it in the way that they should have done. But those who did, it was 100%. So that's why they stopped it early. You know, that they had, they had passed all the measurable uh, bars that they needed to so early. So this is, you know, this is an absolute slam dunk. And so just to be clear, who can get PrEP in the UK? So it is free in Scotland and widely available. That's correct. Um, there is a extensive trial in Wales. Uh, the Wales team have asked for it not to be called a trial, more a pilot. A so pilot, they're, okay. um, But there's no cap on that and they're using branded drug Travada. Yep. And then in England, 10,000 people can join a trial. Currently in England, we have the PrEP Impact Trial and that's available in about 200 level three sexual health clinics around England. There were 10,000 spaces, at least 7,000 of those are now gone, and a lot of clinics are closed to men who have sex with men. So um, there's a lot of unmet need there. We're expecting NHS England to announce a further 3,000 places sometime soon, but I would imagine those places will go very, very quickly. Because I noticed on your website, I want prepnow.co.uk. Thanks for the plug. Um, is that there was low, particularly the London ones and some of the Manchester ones absolutely closed off to new... Yeah, I think there was the one clinic opened and closed in like seven days when we started. Um, and actually, we I'm in very close contact with our preferred seller. I, I, I work quite closely with them, Dynamics. And, and they have said that they haven't noticed a drop in people self-sourcing. So actually, PrEP use is increasing and increasing. So what we haven't actually expanded 
um, prep use through this trial at all. Some people migrated over, not as many as we thought. So demand is rising both for self-sourcing and for and for 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 NHS prep. That's but 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 it should be free a point of care for everyone because that's the only way we can start to address health inequalities and equities. Actually, more importantly, inequities. But also, that's the system of healthcare we have for everybody in the United Kingdom, and LGBT people pay their taxes. So we should. <sighs> well, you would think, you know. Um, <laughs> And Northern Ireland, you said there's just been some progress. Yes, Jackie Richardson from Positive NI sent a tweet last week um, saying that they had just found whatever body in Northern Ireland had found £450,000 to implement a PrEP pilot, which is incredible because the epidemiology in Northern Ireland over the last couple of years is startling. So there, the increase in new diagnoses and predominantly amongst men who have sex with men again is startling. So we're starting to see there and we should know enough about epidemiology now to start trying to nip those those things in the bud now before we end up in a much worse situation. So the National Age Trust won their case and then won the appeal. Where does that leave us now with the provision of PrEP and what needs to happen to get this on the NHS and available to people free at point of use? I would like to say something diplomatic, but and I have the utmost respect for the people running the PrEP Impact trials, so the trial team, the utmost respect. But what they've been given and what and what we have now, it's really it's a, it's a hot mess. It's a hot mess. We have so much unmet need and so many people being turned away, particularly high risk men who have sex with men. And actually, several of those I know two in particular personally that have since contracted HIV after being turned away from the trial wow. because there weren't any spaces. So, so I do not know. And, and that's journey. my own narrative. That's my, I, I am now living with HIV because I couldn't get hold of PrEP. And I got hold of PrEP and it was a few months too late. So for me, three years down the line, almost next month will be three years I've, I've been living with HIV. For me to see that narrative perpetuate and repeat and repeat and repeat, it's, it's painful for me and it's very close to my own. So um, NHS England really need to have a wake-up call. Stop stalling. They've stalled for too many years now and they really need to start the commissioning process. And I'm working um, with local authorities to to make sure we have PrEP next year next year so they need to start the process now and we need some sort of confirmation about when we should expect a proper home for prep on the nhs as soon as possible so peter what can be done in parliament to help with that campaign and make sure the nhs start that what will be an important piece of work well obviously the real action has to take place in government parliament has been putting huge amounts of pressure on jeremy hunt and the nhs to deliver this uh, the the trial and prep underneath it and time and time and time again it's been raised in the house of commons but the key thing is that jeremy hunt and the department have resisted you know we've had to drag them to the courts to get them to where they are now they didn't do it freely even after the trial results came out they were still going to court to try and stop it you know so this isn't an open door that we're pushing on and it's very clear to me that we're not going to get what we need unless we really, you know, knock down that door, invite ourselves into the room and make it absolutely, you know, impossible for them to say no. Uh, once you've made the economic case, once you've made the health case and still the answer is no, you know, you've got a problem and it is a political problem. And that is what we have to overcome now. And it's sometimes very difficult for the people we're talking about and the people that, that you've just described are not people who organise and do petitions on the number 10 website. You know, these are people who sometimes have quite chaotic uh, social lives. And that's why the importance of advocacy, and for me, the advocacy as an MP and a political party, is so essential because these aren't people who are demanding that we sort this out. These are people who need us to sort it out for the public health 
of our nation and for these particularly vulnerable individuals. And on the programme, I saw Andrew Gwynne, the Labour frontbencher, was advocating for this. And uh, Lord Hunt, who is one of the health spokespeople for Labour in the House of Lords, was talking about how we need to get action on this. Are there any Tory allies for this? Is there any prominent Tories who've been supporting the campaign and trying to help push the government on this? Do we know? I'm terrible with politics. Lord Fowler is Tory, right? Yeah, he so, is. Yeah, Lord Fowler is, and and he has been remarkable in the House of Lords, and he's now the Speaker of the House of Lords. But he has been. I mean, uh, uh, Lord Fowler has been a campaigner on this since the you know the 1990s. So he, to his credit, he is <laughs> he is an absolute pioneer. But there are you know th- there are Tory MPs who are always on side with this, and it's sometimes the usual suspects. You know, it's Nick Herbert and. Um, Crispin Blunt and a whole bunch of others who are there in the chamber and putting the case forward, but not enough and not enough people that are, you know, really delivering a, a very clear majority uh, and clearly not enough that is showing that this is something that Parliament is going to keep returning to and keep returning to. And I think it's the persistence in the in the, in the Commons that's missing at the moment. And that's something that uh, in an era where Commons is so dominated by Brexit, it's very hard for these things to get the prominence that, that, it, that it deserves. We nearly got the all the way through without talking about Brexit then, but go on, mm. Katie. Uh, yeah, just like in all campaigns, you're, you need a coalition to to win um, on political sides and people are interested and not interested in people who are affected by the issue and or not. So as somebody who isn't a bi man or, or a gay man or a man that sleeps with other men, what can I do uh, to help with this campaign, to help you win this campaign? Is there anything that people like me that would like to, to help out that could do? That's the really frustrating thing about this is the argument's been won. You know, once you've got the evidence, whether it's economic or whether it's health, and you've delivered it, and it's been judged independently by academics, it's been accepted by the courts (laughs) and government. You know, it's very hard for campaigners to sit back and say, what else do we have to do? You know, what has to be done before the Department for Health and the NHS accepts this? And I think that's the huge frustration that we feel and why it's sometimes difficult for campaigners, because you've done everything else that campaigners normally need to do in order for things to change in government. And it's very hard to separate this from the fact that we're talking about gay men who are uh, having, having sometimes quite a lot of sex and sometimes choosing to have a lot of sex. And if this was straight people having a lot of sex, it would be a very different argument. And the tone of the debate would be very, very different. I have to be convinced of that. I have to pick up on that. First of all, thank you, Peter, because I was open-jawed and just sort of mentally going, uh, I don't know what to answer to that question. But you're right. I'm kind of baffled as to what, what the next step is. But to pick up on what you said about gay men and straight people, we do not please straight sex and straight people and their choices and their lifestyle choices, in inverted commas, the way we do with other groups, uh, particularly gay men. But we actively promote them having unprotected sex because we want them to have children. Well, like, exactly. Everyone's moaning that yeah. we don't have enough children in this and, country and, 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 why we have immigrants. <laughs> like, th- like, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, we actively promote straight people to have unprotected sex. Like, so it, I, it's horrific. Well, I'm not going to say that on record, but... <laughs> I've said it. <laughs> but, 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 but it wouldn't be called bareback straight sex, would it? You know what I mean? It wouldn't, yeah. That wouldn't be bareback straight sex. That's, that's just sex. But anyway, my point was, um, Peter mentioned something very... that's kind of st- struck with me about, about straight people. So we know we've had a huge uptake in men who have sex with men, predominantly white, well-educated, in big urban areas, taking prep. We know that from our data, from sales data, from dynamics. But we know for a fact... And not just around PrEP, we know for a fact, period, that women 
they don't like to go to sexual health clinics. They like to get their care and their sexual health from their family doctor or in community settings. And we know black Africans, particularly black African women, prefer to see their family doctor. Now, while PrEP sits in a trial setting only available from level three sexual health clinics, we're already doing a huge injustice to women and other people, people who aren't gay men, who haven't had all that extensive work getting them to sexual health clinics, getting them to test regularly. So while this sits isolated in a trial setting, we're doing a huge disservice immediately to other groups of people who could really benefit from PrEP. And until we have PrEP commissioned and then integrated, we can't get on with doing the work that we want to do. So we are kind of not stalling because there's plenty of work to be done, but we're struggling to see how we can really push the agenda forward and make sure PrEP is available and acceptable, most of all acceptable to people who could really benefit from it. And of course, for those who can't go on the trial, they have to pay for it. And one of your website is one of the ways that people can find access to their own private treatment in that sense. But that as a base has a social justice element to it. If some people can't afford... For, so, okay, I mean, what we're only, talking about, the kind of cost it's of only six, So uh, you can do a month separate, but it works out the cheapest to buy three months at a time, and that works out at £60. Now, it's not a huge amount of money, but when I was looking for PrEP, at the time it, was, it would have been £150 for three months. It's now £60 for three months, so about 20 quid a month. But back then, I couldn't have afforded the £60, let alone the £150. I was homeless, I was a sex worker, and I was doing drugs as part of my sex work. So I was had a chaotic life and also I, d- I didn't have that disposable income. But not only that, I was homeless, so I didn't have a fixed address. I was staying with friends. So if you don't have a fixed address to have something delivered to, if you are in a relationship and having sex outside of that relationship, or if you're not out, or if you're in an abusive, if you're a woman in an abusive relationship and you just want to take that and, and be, um, and be uh, protected, but you need to do it secretly, all those dynamics. And if maybe if English isn't your first language, we have all of these injustices and inequities, and we really can't progress with it until we have a, a proper home on the NHS. What you've just described is actually why we have an NHS in the first place. Exactly. Thank you. So, you know, this was actually to, to, to settle these inequalities that we had uh, by socioeconomic background, by ethnic background, by, you know, any other uh, background. And at the moment, we're, we're now finding that PrEP is, is available to people who can afford it, but not to those who can't. And, you know, in a period where we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of the NHS, it, it really does show that these are arguments that we have to win time and time and time again. Well, maybe the Tory government, rather than giving the NHS a birthday present of what it needed uh, to have anyway, shouldn't be giving it to an institution, but the institution should be giving a 70th birthday present to the British people to have fair access to treatment. Now, And I just uh, hope that they don't announce it's going to be paid for out of a Brexit dividend, otherwise we really are screwed. <laughs> well, that, 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 that is not a coming, is it? So I'm going to call the discussion to an end there. It's been absolutely fascinating and we could go on and on and on. Greg, thank you very much for not just joining us today, but for what you have done. You have you know, changed people's lives with your campaign, but more than a campaign, by setting up this ability for people to source their own prep is absolutely remarkable. And I heard about your work through one of my friends we were talking about in the pub and just saying, you know, how pioneering you've been. This is before the TV program and lots of the publicity you're getting. You know, you really are an inspiration to a lot of people um, out there. And, you know, you make them feel safer in what they do and their day-to-day lives to be themselves. And I think you have given a lot of people the confidence to talk about their sexual health and, and put PrEP in a very mainstream way. And in just a very small amount of time, we have changed the conversation. And you just have to look on some of the gay dating apps about how people talk about how they use PrEP as part of their sexual health practice or, or whatever. You know, you've changed the dial. And on behalf of a lot of people you might never meet, um, I want to say thank you. And I know um, everyone... Uh, 
Uh, there are lots of other people who want to say thank you as well. Uh, thank you, Katie, for joining us, and thank you, Peter Kyle. Each week, we ask the political pub quiz question. This week, it's PrEP related. At what age can you get PrEP in Scotland? And what age can you access it in Wales? So two different answer, two part answer there. Please send your answers to at Progress Online on Twitter or email in office at progressonline.org.uk. That's the end of this week's episode. We're really pleased to have been joined by Greg Owen from I Want PrEP Now and the Terence Higgins Trust by Peter Kyle, the MP for Hobe, and by our, our very own Katie Curtis, who is also the Disability Officer of LGBT Labour. We'll be taking your feedback on the Friday show as normal, where we'll be announcing who get, got the answer to the pub quiz question right and gets a progress mug. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 